0: So I'm really excited about being here this morning. Um, One of the reasons is I had a long stretch working in the kids' classes. I love being in the kids' classes. But I missed you guys, so I'm glad to be in here this morning. So um, I remember growing up, people who knew my father... They just had a certain image of my dad, and um, this was especially true for in, in church, um, but it was also true of, like, my neighbors, my teachers, friends at school. They would often say things to me. They would say, I just can't imagine ever seeing your dad angry. Like, I just, what would that even look like? And, you know, my dad was and is a pretty calm, kind guy, um, very thoughtful, um, And so I see what they were saying, but they just couldn't believe that he wasn't like that all the time, that he, every once in a while, got a little bit angry. And that um, always made me uncomfortable because I was like, yeah, he is that guy. He is that guy at home, too, but I know what he looks like angry. Like, yeah, he gets angry, you know. And so, you know it wasn't like he was screaming and yelling all the time at my house. He wasn't. He, I don't remember him raising his voice or even saying anything mean. But yeah, he got angry and he had a certain look that I knew that he wasn't happy. And so I remember the it just made me feel uncomfortable. Like, yeah, why can't he be this guy and be angry sometimes? So I remember the first time that my uh, oldest daughter, who is now 20, uh, realized that her papa could get angry as well. So, you know, if you imagine he's a nice guy. Um, he's got this, these granddaughters. He's got seven granddaughters, no grandsons. And he's just mush with these, these little girls. But she learned that there are some things that can make Papa angry. So she was, I think, less than five. They went on a walk. This is the suburbs. So I will say there aren't a lot of cars around. But still, The rule was she had to hold her papa's hand if they crossed the street. And for some reason that day, she decided she didn't. And so she dropped the hand and entered the street on her own, which my father corrected her. And then she just continued to cross, you know, just zipped across um, on her own. And so I just remember I was inside the house. They came in the door, and I looked at my father, and I recognized that look. (laughs) I know what that is. Um, you know, calm, but there's something in his eyes that change when he's angry. And and it's funny because Emma, I don't think she ever really got to see that again. She chose not to um, see that again, but she remembers that day. If you ask her, she remembers the day she saw Papa get angry. So I tell that story because during our new teaching series on the Gospel of John, We're looking at John's own personal account of Jesus's life and ministry. So John knew Jesus. He shared uh, years with him, so he knew him deeply. And one of the themes that we see in John's writing as we look through his writing, we see that in the gospel and also in his letters, John really focuses a lot on the love of Jesus. In fact, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Which, you know, when you read that, it's always a little bit like, what is he saying? Is he saying Jesus didn't love the other disciples? Like, that seems rude. But uh, I think... I think that that's the identity he saw in himself. Like the thing that came first for him was that he was a disciple whom Jesus loved. And so we see that he is trying throughout these stories of Jesus, he's trying to tell others about who he knew as the Messiah, the Son of God, but the man that he shared time with. And so he tells stories and he tells things that Jesus said so that we can know Jesus too in that way. And so the first story he tells in chapter 2 is Jesus going to a wedding. So he goes to a wedding with his family, and the hosts of the wedding run out of wine. And so Jesus' mother goes to him and says, they've run out of wine, which is kind of a funny interaction with his mom. You can kind of imagine it, and he's like, what do you want me to do about that? You know, And, and she, she doesn't say, but she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do which is kind of funny. Um, and so then Jesus tells the servants to go and fill these empty jars uh, with water, and then he turns that water into wine, really good wine. And so we learn early on that Jesus is a great guy to have around at a party, and we also learn that he has the power to do miracles. This is the first recorded miracle um, that we see Jesus doing in his ministry. And it says that disciples began to believe in him as the son of God. But the next story that John chooses to tell is surprising for a number of reasons. And perhaps one of those reasons is that for those of us who've kind of been raised with this image of Jesus, where he's like, always in a white tunic and a blue sash, and like, Birds come and sit on his shoulder. Like, have you seen those pictures? They come and sit on his shoulder, and then, like, sunlight comes through the clouds and follows him around, right? He's this nice, calm man. And so, when you read this story of Jesus, it can be a little bit surprising. So, I want us to read through John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Verse 13 it says, It was almost time for the Jewish Passover feast. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courtyard, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And others were sitting at tables exchanging money. So Jesus made a whip out of ropes, and he chased all the sheep and cattle from the temple courtyard. And he scattered the coins of the people exchanging money, and he turned over their tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered what had been written in Psalm 69, verse 9. It says, my great love for your house will destroy me. So if you've ever thought, I just can't imagine what it would look like for Jesus to be angry. Well, I think this is kind of a a pretty good description of that. It seems like Jesus is angry. This depiction of Jesus um, might be hard for us to imagine this calm, sweet man carrying a whip with him. Honestly, it's not the Jesus that I want to be around. I don't like the idea of Jesus being angry. But even though it makes me feel uncomfortable, maybe it isn't fair for me to expect that Jesus doesn't get angry. I mean, my dad is not Jesus. He's flawed in many ways, but still it wasn't fair for people to expect just because he was one way that he didn't also get angry. It isn't fair because part of our shared humanity is that we all have an experience and should express our full range of emotions, including anger. And Jesus is human here, and he is clearly experiencing and expressing his anger. So as we kind of get over that shock of seeing Jesus so full of anger, we have to ask the question here, what is making him angry? But before we try to answer that question, I, I also want to mention something here that is also surprising in this story of John. It's surprising that it become, it comes at the beginning of the book of John. You will see... Sorry, I'm, the insect loves me too. Um, you see this a similar story like this is also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life. But in all of those um, gospels, this story or one similar to it is at the end of Jesus' life and hit right before he is crucified. And so just a few weeks ago, I was reading through the book of John again, and I came to this you know, second chapter, and I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't belong here this doesn't go at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And because of this difference over the years, uh, many people think of it as a conflict, right? It's different. One is in the beginning and the other three at the end. And so they suggested maybe we can't have a conflict here. So maybe um, it happened twice. And John's recording it at the beginning and um, the others are recording another time. And I just want to Just remind us that sometimes when we um, read as 21st century readers, we are surprised and confused by some things that would not have been surprising or confusing for 1st century readers. And one of those things is we expect stories to be told chronologically. And 1st century readers would not have. You didn't expect that everything was told chronologically like we do. When we tell a story, we say this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But that didn't happen at that time, and it seems like that's what John is trying to do. He's trying to do something else, tell the story in a different way. There's something more important than telling it chronologically. And so you will see that here, um, but in other places there's differences that seem like John is telling the story in a different way. It's because he often doesn't tell it chronologically. And so you have to ask, if he doesn't choose to tell the story in order, why is he choosing the stories he does when he tells them? Like, why is he telling this story that probably happened at the end of Jesus' ministry? Why does he begin so close at the beginning of his book to tell this story? And I wonder if it isn't that John thought it was really important for people who didn't know Jesus that they knew Early on, what makes Jesus angry? Think about it. Your closest family members or their friends, do you know what makes them angry? Think about people especially who don't get angry very much, um, those who are very others-focused, they don't think about themselves, and yet they get angry. And so if you know what makes them angry, you have a pretty good idea what that person is all about. For my dad, um, Emma learned that It's pretty important to him that his kids are safe and protected. And so it wasn't as much that she didn't obey him. I think that was frustrating as well. But I think ultimately it was about that she put herself in danger. So what is happening in this moment in the temple that makes Jesus act this way? I want to read through it one more time. Verse 13 says, It was almost time for the Jewish Passover feast, So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courtyard, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And others were sitting at tables exchanging money. And so Jesus made a whip out of ropes. He chased all the sheep and cattle from the temple courtyard. And he scattered the coins of the people exchanging money. And he turned over their tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So sometimes it's hard for us to really get the full picture here without knowing a lot about the culture at the time, the politics, and the different practices that are occurring in the temple. So I'm just going to go through some of that background information that's helpful for us. And one thing that's really helpful for us to always remember when we're reading through Jesus's life is there are two really important influences that are always at play. So one is the Jewish customs, the Jewish laws and teaching. There are Jewish spiritual leaders and political leaders who are in control. And so we see that throughout um, the book of John and all of the Gospels, really. But the other important influence that we have to remember is the Roman government was above all of that. They were in control of that area. And so um, they influence what's happening as well. We know that at this time, during the Passover, uh, Galileans, like Jesus, where he came from, traveled to Jerusalem. And we know this because of Josephus, um, the first century historian, he said that entire villages would travel together to go to these major festivals. Um, And when they went, they had to offer a sacrifice. And so they could offer a sheep, or a cow, or a dove. And so it would um, be extra work to take those animals with them. And so they just waited till they got to root, to Jerusalem and bought them there. But what you offered as a sacrifice depended on um, your economic situation. And so poorer people were allowed to just sacrifice a dove. And we know that Jesus, that is um, the family, his family, was poor because that's what they sacrificed earlier um, in his life. That's recorded in another gospel that they sacrificed a dove. So that's where Jesus is coming from. He's traveling with um, probably family, definitely his disciples, um, people who are struggling uh, to make the trip, the cost of the trip, and then um, to to get a purchase a um, animal to sacrifice. We also know that at this time, any male Jew who was above the age of 20, no matter what their economic situation was, they had a set temple tax that they had to pay every time they went to the temple. And um, Roman coinage um, had an image of the ruler, just like ours does, but that went against Jewish law, so they couldn't use that coinage in the temple. So they had other coinage that was used, and that's why there were money exchangers there. Um, but we know that money uh, changers, they oftentimes made a good amount of money by charging an exorbitant amount of an exchange rate so that they could profit. They could profit off of um, oftentimes poor people who were there to worship. Now, on an ordinary day in this temple, it is huge, so it would have been, it felt pretty empty, but at Passover, uh, they believe that it was possibly as, as much as a million people were there in Jerusalem at this time. So here in the temple, it's going to be thousands of people. Um, you know, lots going on at the temple at this time. So it's, if, to give you just an idea of how big we're talking about is over 35 acres. Um, I have talked to some people that saying acres doesn't mean anything to you. Um, I understand that. So I asked Larry to help me with that, and he said, okay, so 30." Soccer fields, if that helps, you know what a soccer field is um, and how big that is. 30 of those would be the size of a temple. Or 32 football fields, I think we decided. 32 to 35, if that helps. And then if that doesn't help you, we decided three of the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art on the Upper East Side. If you know how big that is pretty big three of those is the size of the temple so we're talking a pretty big um, place with lots of things going on Uh, where you see the courts that they talk the courts where things are being sold those are the courts of the gentiles So, those are on kind of the sides of each side of the temple, and the center is where the Jews went to worship, but they were supposed to have areas where if you were a non-Jew and you wanted to worship Yahweh, you could go to the temple, but you stayed in these courts. And so, those are the courts that are filled with animals, they're filled with money changers, and so not a um, wonderful place for the Gentiles to be worshiping during Passover. Also, Roman guards are spread throughout the temple. They're there to keep the peace. Um, they would intervene if there was any big disturbance or a sign of an uprising. So all of that is kind of helps us give a picture of what's going on. I know um, when I read this, when I didn't realize the size, I thought everybody knows what's going on. Jesus is coming in to the size of this room. Yeah, we would know what's going on. But we're talking in an enormous area Um Probably not all of the animals did he get out. Um, he's, he's making a point, and um, he is trying to bring a message, an important message to uh, what he is doing and why he came to earth. And so he goes to this um, temple to worship, and he sees all of this mess, and he sees the people who are outsiders. He sees the people who are being taken advantage of, the poor, Um, the Gentiles who are being marginalized, and it angers Jesus. And I want us to recognize that, yes, Jesus is a nice guy, but this is more than Jesus just being a nice guy here. His anger is about him bringing the message of reconciliation, which is really central to the message of the gospel. And reconciliation, it can be defined as restoring a relationship of peace of shalom where nothing is missing and nothing is broken and so we talk a lot about how Jesus brought the message of reconciliation and we talk a lot about how this brokenness between um, our relationship with with God and he's he worked to bring reconciliation between our broken relationship with God but then he also saw other things that were broken Systems that were broken in society. And he came to bring a message of reconciliation that all should be made whole, where nothing is missing. That's the message of reconciliation and shalom. And so he enters the temple and he sees these broken systems at play and the poor being taken advantage of and the Gentiles being pushed to the side and it makes him angry. But we shouldn't be surprised because God was angry about the same thing over and over again through the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, he's angry about the same thing, especially in the prophets. Um, God's always telling his prophets to tell his people that he is not happy with how they are treating the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner among them. And so I just am going to read a few of those passages. Um, There are many, many more. But just to kind of see this theme and see that Jesus is much like God, the same thing angers them both. So in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, we see that God is trying to establish his people um, as a unique people, and so he's giving them an idea of how he wants them to act and be. And so Deuteronomy 10, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. But then we see generations later, the prophet Ezekiel tells God's people that God sees what they're doing. He says, the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy. And they mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. And then the prophet Amos, he talks about um, how God's people are treating the poor. They're, they're practicing the, um, the festivals and Sabbath, and yet they're concerned instead with their own wealth. He says this in Amos 8, verse 4. Listen to me, you who walk all over needy people. You crush those who are poor in the land. You say, when will the new moon feast be over? And then we can sell our grain. When will the Sabbath day come to an end? Then people can buy our wheat. But you measure out less than the right amount, and you raise your prices, and you cheat others by using dishonest scales. God gave the Sabbath and these festivals as a gift to his people, and they are not concerned. They're doing what they can you know, not doing work on the Sabbath, but really all they're worried about is how they're going to make money, money off poor people. In Isaiah chapter 58, God talks to people who are fasting. He says, on the day when you fast, so they're worshiping God by their fast. He says, you do as you please. You take advantage of all your workers. And then he says, here's how I want you to fast. Here's what I want from you. Set free those who are held in chains without any reason. Untie the ropes that hold people as slaves. Set free those who are crushed. Break every evil chain. Share your food with hungry people. Provide homeless people with a place to stay. Give naked people clothes to wear. Provide for the needs of your own family. And then the light of my blessing will shine on you like the rising sun." That is the message of reconciliation. It's not just about our relationship with God, but it is with one another, the broken systems that are in play, and how we treat one another. And that makes God angry when he sees it, and it makes Jesus angry. And we have to ask ourselves the question what makes us angry? Because here's the thing we all have anger. In the class that we offer every year, Emotionally Healthy Relationship Skills class, we learn to ask the question, how is God coming to us through our emotions? What is he trying to teach us through our emotions? And today, I just want to focus on the emotion of anger. Because anger oftentimes is the appropriate response for injustice or our personal value being crossed by someone or broken. Anger can be this warning light for us that something isn't right. But anger can also come from a place of brokenness. So anger, when we see things that are broken in society, it is appropriate for us to be angry. But sometimes we get angry because of our own brokenness, um, our own sinful nature, but also um, that we don't see ourselves the same way God sees us. And in that brokenness, we get angry in different ways. And so I just want to kind of, run through a list of some different ways that we might get angry that kind of show um, some areas of our own brokenness. And I imagine all of you will just, at least one of these will be something that you can say, yeah, I struggle with that. Um, We all have brokenness inside of us. So do you get angry just because someone has a different opinion than you or chooses to do things differently? Do you get angry when other people show their emotions, like fear or sadness, because... It makes you uncomfortable, it makes you feel afraid and sad and you don't want to. Um, Do you get angry when you aren't in control or in charge or someone questions your ideas? Do you get angry when you mess up and you start to question your own self-worth? Do you get mad at yourself? Do you get angry that people can't read your mind and know what you want without asking for it? Or do you get angry when you don't meet someone else's expectations of you? How is God coming to you through your emotion of anger? Because not all anger is righteous anger. Some is out of our own brokenness. And we really need to do that hard work of asking ourselves, what is behind this anger here? Now, parents, we have a few parents of preschoolers. They might know the song that um, the PBS show Daniel Tiger teaches children how to deal with their anger, it's a short little thing that I'm going to teach you. Um, It goes, when you feel mad, so mad that you might roar, take a deep breath and count to four. One, two, three, four. It's a very helpful song, very helpful practice. Uh, You might want to start there. But as adults, we probably need to move past that. As self-regulation and also kind of work to look behind those feelings of anger and really check to see if there's something in that that God is trying to teach us about ourselves and Jesus's work of reconciliation in the world. Um, so I just want to give you a short example, just an example that probably all of us deal with. Um, you're in the grocery store at the end of the day. You need to pick a few things up and you really want to get home and you notice you're getting angry now, you could sing the Daniel Tiger song. Um, you could even maybe sing it in your head instead of out loud. But um, also, maybe try to just be present in that emotion. Sometimes we're angry and we have no idea why. We just kind of feel it in our bodies, but we don't really know wha- where it's coming from. Um, it could be, if you really think about it for a moment, you can see that there's only a few um, lines that are open and you think, who's decision was this they made a mistake and it's affecting me and so you get angry or maybe you're you're angry at yourself because you're in the wrong line the line that goes the slowest you're like I should have known better I should have watched Um, or maybe it's because in the line next to you somebody's been treated disrespectfully whether it's um, a customer's treating the um, cashier disrespectfully or maybe a child is and you it's bothering you that's where the anger is coming from Anger can be the appropriate response. And then other times, it shows us we have some work to do in ourselves. So this week, we had this rare moment, Larry and I, where we were talking through this um, message. And um, where we were like, hey, we can talk about the anger in each other that we notice now this isn't necessarily recommended in our relationship at all times but it was like this moment we were like hey we can do this um and so I was like I noticed that you get angry in traffic and all the time and I don't understand it and he was like I noticed that you get not and this wasn't mean it was sound that sounded mean well I noticed it wasn't like that really I mean, we can't be like that, but we weren't that way that day. So he said, I noticed that whenever you have computer problems, you get really angry, and I don't understand it. And so it's always the computer's fault, right? It's not my fault. But um, so we had to stop for a minute, and both of us kind of had to think about it. Like, what is it? What is it in those moments that makes us so angry? And um, it wasn't necessarily righteous anger. It was really some of our own brokenness and things that we believed about ourselves in that moment that wasn't true and that God really needs to work on. And so we even said, can I help you in that moment? Is there something that I can say that can kind of remind you of the truth? And we'll see how that goes. but, um, (laughs) But it was helpful to just have that conversation. So here's your work for this week. What I'd like you to do is just spend some time and make a list of things that make you really angry. And try to get behind some of that. Maybe just five things that make you really angry. Maybe it helps you to talk to somebody else who knows you well. And you can kind of think about that. But um, just to do some work. Where's the anger coming from? We see in Jesus' life that he was completely motivated out of love. And that was true of his, his anger as well. His anger was completely motivated out of love. And so we see later in John, in chapter 13, he tells his disciples, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So there's this example for us of how he loved people, even in his anger, that we need to learn and try to be like that. He said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so that is what we're striving to do. That's why we do the hard work of figuring out where our anger is coming from. Because we want to be like Jesus, where we can say that even our anger is motivated out of love. And just imagine what our church would be like, what our families, what our workplaces would be like if we could say even our anger is just motivated out of love. And so that is why we are working to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus even in our anger. Let's pray. Jesus, I have to be honest. I don't like the idea of you being angry. And um, it makes me uncomfortable. And yet, the things that make you angry should anger us as well. And I pray that... um, We would see your example and that we would notice those things around us that are not okay, that are broken, and need your power, your reconciliation at work. And I pray that it wouldn't just make us angry, but it would make us move and that we would um, speak truth, that we would break chains that we would let people free, that we would feed people who need fed, clothe those who need clothed, to take care of our own families as well, that that is the fast you are looking for. That is the worship you are looking for in our lives, Lord. But I pray that we would also do the work, our inner work that says, um, where is this anger coming from? What work do you want to do in me, Lord? What is still broken that you can make whole? Lord, I pray for bravery and courage because that's scary work. And it's so easy to just worry about other people's problems and not our own. So I pray that we would be brave and courageous in this work, Lord, knowing that you love us and that you want us to love others as well. It's in your name we pray.